Well, how many people do you think give Academy Awards speeches and thank God? Rebecca Rolf actually did a study on that, surveyed 207 speeches from 1953 to 2012, and found the most surprising thing was how many people thanked God. How many do you think that number is? We'll come back to that in a moment. This here is called the Letter to Diognetius. It is written about 175 AD. It's fascinating because it's one of the earliest letters outside of Scripture we have that discusses what believers lived like in the early church. The letter was written by an unknown writer, but he's answering a question from Diognetius, what are Christians like or how do they live? And here's some things he wrote. The letter's longer than this, but here's some highlights. He said this, Christians are not distinguished from other men by country, language, or custom. As citizens, they participate in everything with others, yet they endure everything as if foreigners. Every land is their homeland, and every land of their birth is like a land of strangers. We'll come back to the, more of that letter here in a moment. I want to share a testimony in a few minutes. And what I encourage is between the scripture and this letter and the testimony, try to find yourself in one of these, if not all of these. Allow God to speak to you on how he wants you to make a change today, what you can take from what we share, and have a different standard of living in Christ. So, James chapter 4, one verse, verse 17, James, a half-brother of Jesus, did not believe he to be the Messiah at first, but later on became convinced Jesus is Messiah. And James then wrote famously to people in that first century, as well as today, for those who simply talk. He said, I will show you my true faith by the way I act, by the works I do. He said, all sorts of people talk. He said, let me show you my faith by how I live my life. And in chapter 4, verse 17, he says this, one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. One who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. We'll come back to some of the meaning behind that in a moment. More of that letter, they marry like everyone else. They have children, but they do not abandon unwanted babies. In that first century, second century culture in Rome, if they didn't want a child, they would abandon that child at the side of the road or in a desert even if it meant that child would die. Very cruel. However, accepted in that culture, but not within the church. The writer goes on and says, they exist in the flesh, but not live by the flesh. They pass their days on earth. They are citizens of heaven. They love all men and are persecuted. They are unknown and condemned and put to death, restored to life. This is a picture of a bald eagle just a few minutes here from the church. My wife and I took a photo last week in Scripture. We all know the famous verse, Isaiah 40, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength and soar on wings like eagles. If you go to Deuteronomy 32, God compares himself to an eagle when he says, I protect you under the shadow of my wing. Eagles are this tremendously beautiful creature eight-foot wingspan. When they build the nest, it's made of sticks and mud and animal fur. When it's time for the babies to learn to fly, the parents start to remove some of that fur, 
some of that mud, some of those sticks, so that nest becomes more and more uncomfortable. So the baby eagle starts to step out onto a branch and then eventually further on the branch away from the nest. Eventually then they will begin to fly. Very fascinating, the discussion though in scripture. Again, God sometimes compared to an eagle, this powerful bird. He says that we then are to mount up like eagles, soar above circumstances, soar above the temporary things and live a different type of life with our strength and our hope in Christ. This great quote here by Tony Robbins, you can take the word depression and change it to be, you know, anger, laziness, whatever it is. But he has a great statement. He says, depression is focus only on yourself, only on what you are not getting and only consider your needs. When we only focus on ourselves and what we're not getting and think about no one else, that's the pathway to nothing but destruction. Life is doing what James said. If you know the right thing to do, then you should do it. And if you don't do that right thing, then to you it becomes sin. We again want to live our life to say, let me be like Jesus in all things. Going back to that letter, notice what he says here. They are poor, yet make many rich. They lack everything, yet overflow in everything. They are dishonored, yet in dishonor they are glorified. They're reviled, but they bless. They're insulted, they repay with honor. They do good, yet are punished. But when punished... They rejoice as if raised from the dead. Again, to stop and say, does my life line up to that first century, second century ideal found in scripture, found in this letter? It can if we simply say, let me stop focusing only on self and what I think I'm not getting, ignoring other people, and rather say, let me live my life by losing my life and seek only what Christ wants to give through me, do through me, teach me. So how many people do you think thank God at the Oscars? We know, very evident on a regular basis in the media, culture moving more and more to a secularized culture. What's going to stop that? Believers doing what they're supposed to do. Doing what they know is the right thing. Rebecca Rolfe 207 speeches of the Oscars. She said, people that thanked God, 11, 11 people. For those who know the right thing, but they don't do it, unto them it is sin. Notice here the last part of this letter. To sum it up in one word, what the soul is to the body, that is what a Christian is in the world. The soul is dispersed in the body. Christians are scattered in all cities of the world. And here's a great statement, one of the earliest to use this. He says, the soul lives in the body, but is not of the body, as Christians live in the world, but are not of the world. You know, in the book of Hebrews, the writer talks about people like David and Abraham and Isaiah, and he says, of them, the world was not worthy. You see, that's an ideal to reach for, to say, let me live such an honorable life doing the right thing because I love Christ. Giving my life 
that I might live to glorify Him. I want to share a testimony. And again, try to find yourself in this situation here. And the changes and the challenges. Written by Spencer Cody. He called it a Native American story. And here's what Spencer wrote. I sat in stone silence looking at the white man a few feet from me. My heart was cold. I assumed he felt the same. This is how it's always been, I thought. The Indian and the white man as enemies, eyeing each other with anger and suspicion. This man's name was Sonny James. He had taken me into his home to help me overcome my alcohol addiction, the relentless killer of Native Americans. He and his wife Margie were Christians who opened their home to all kinds of men who needed help. They called the ministry Gates of Life, and I now found myself surrounded by the very thing I had come to hate, white men. I could have left, but I was a desperate man. This letter was just written a few years ago, this summary of what took place. Again, one who knows the right thing and does not do it to him, it is sin. Certainly, there's tremendous division in our culture, but here's a great statement by Rick Burdett. It doesn't do any good to win an argument if you're losing the character of Christ in you. It doesn't do any good to win an argument if you're losing the character of Christ in you. We are called to do the right thing, as the writer of that letter said, in the world, not of the world, but above the things. Temporary things people get so caught up in. Back to Spencer's story. He said this. One day we were building fences. One of the other men openly revealed his contempt toward me with a racial remark. Cold fury welled up within my heart. Before I knew it, I was beating him mercilessly. We were separated and taken back to the ranch. When we got back to the ranch, Sonny met me in the office. Spencer, he said, you have hatred and bitterness in your heart toward white people. Why are you so angry? My mind drifted back to my childhood days in Oklahoma. Luke chapter 10, Jesus has sent out the twelve. And they come back, they've healed people, there's been miracles, they've cast out demons. He then sends out the 70, and they come back and testify to the same thing. But there's some people there who are upset, and they gather around Jesus, and they begin to criticize him. And Jesus says this, Luke 10, 13, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. Miracles had been seen in Chorazin and Bethsaida. And then Jesus looks at them and says this, If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon were beside Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that represented absolute corruption in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, You have seen all these miracles and your heart hasn't changed. And if Tyr and Sidon, Sodom and Gomorrah had seen half of what you saw, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. You know, when people say things like, if only I had a sign, I would do it. 
If only I could have a sign, I'd make the change. I'd make that commitment, that recommitment. And Jesus said there's all sorts of people down through history that have asked for signs and some have seen the signs, but they didn't change. What changes is when we get into our heart and mind that Christ is our life and to live is to be crucified in him. Notice he said they would have repented. Again, repent does not mean feel guilty, though sometimes that might be a part. Repent means to turn and go the opposite way. And he said they repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. What they would do is put ashes on their head from a sacrifice to remind them that sin leads to death. They wore a sackcloth, very uncomfortable clothing, itchy. It would be just painful to have on. That way they'd be reminded sin should make me uncomfortable. And they repent by showing very outwardly what was taking place inwardly. And Jesus said to those in the first century, if these cities in the Old Testament saw what you saw, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. They would have turned and have gone the opposite way. We have to stop and say for our own lives, how much has he shown us in our life to say this is the way, walk therein. Spencer continues, My father was a believer, I was not. My dad had an old Gibson guitar. He'd sit on the front porch and sing, I am weak, thou art strong. Jesus, keep me from all wrong. I'll be satisfied as long as I walk close to thee. I'd sit down to be close to him. I was afraid to say a word, though, when he sang. The presence of God was all around him. But I would occasionally see this humble man looked down upon because of the collar of his skin. One particular incident tore at my heart. When I was 12 years old, my father and I were standing in a hardware store. seemed like an eternity. Waiting alone by the counter, the clerk ignored us. We waited and waited and waited. I'll never forget how I felt as a 12-year-old boy seeing my father humiliated before me. But the painful memories didn't stop there. Spencer would go on to say he eventually took lessons to learn how to fight because he got into so many fights, and so did his siblings. And they'd be attacked at times. Even his sister, he said, would be attacked and punched in pain of watching that. He lived in Oklahoma, and watching that became overwhelming. So he continued to say, as he grew older, he got more angry at the way his family was treated and hated. But eventually that anger turned into pain, and that pain led him to the alcohol, and he eventually became an alcoholic. He would go out at night and get in fights and get drunk, and he'd come home late, and he writes this when he came home one night. When I got home, I heard weeping. It was my father. He was praying. He said, Father, Lord, bring my son home safe to me tonight. And then he kept weeping. I walked over to him and I quietly said, Dad, all of a sudden, I wanted to know this Jesus that could fill a man with such deep love for his family, even in the midst of humiliation and hardship. 
Spencer would become a believer. He would study hard. He'd begin to be a witness to some of those people that he'd fight at school. He started to teach scripture and Bible lessons at church. He then got married and things seemed to be going very well. But he said, I still wrestled with the anger and I couldn't stop fighting. I couldn't stop drinking. And when he thought life was turning in the right direction, he shared this. I still had rejection. I still experienced division. And eventually the church I was at split. And at that moment, I didn't believe anyone had the truth. So I walked away. Years of pain, violence, and brokenness brought him to Sonny's treatment center. And he said, once I was back from those memories, I explained to Sonny what had happened. I was staring face to face with him, and he'd asked me that question, why are you so angry? And Spencer writes this. Through an eruption of tears, I told Sonny about my life in Oklahoma. I couldn't stop crying. I cried for my mother, my brothers, my sisters. I cried for my father, and I cried for myself. And then I heard something I'd never heard before. This white man was crying with me. Lord, oh Lord, please forgive us, he repeated in a broken voice. Tony Robbins puts it like this. We all have painful past memories. It is what we do with them that matters. We've all had struggles. We've all had challenges. We all have a story. But you change that story and you change your life. When you have a story that traps you and says things can never be better because of this or things will never change because of this, that's a story that holds us. And when you take that story and you surrender that to the cross and say, you know what, I'm going to live like Jesus because he's called me to soar like an eagle. He's called me to have strength renewed in him. And he tells me when I know the right thing, I'm to do it. And I'm going to live at a different standard, maybe in the world, but not of the world. Which brings us to the close of Spencer and Sonny's story. Sonny looked at me with tears streaming down his face and said, Spencer, I cannot speak for every man, but I can speak on behalf of myself and my family. I'm sorry for what's been done to you, your family, your people. Will you forgive me? I knew then in a deeper way than I'd ever known before that Jesus was real. Nobody but a God of love could fill a man with that much love and acceptance. Looking at his tear-stained face, I answered, for Jesus' sake, I forgive you. Peace flooded my being, and I suddenly had a new sense of hope. And as we close, I hope you'll take his statement here as your own personal mission, along with James' words, know the right thing, then do it. And Spencer Close with this. For the first time, I knew without a doubt I'd spend the rest of my life pursuing Jesus. For those who know the right thing but don't do it, unto them it is sin. Jesus has given us all the signs that we need. He simply bids us to repent, turn and go the other way, go the right direction. And follow after him. And maybe today 
to commit to spend the rest of your life pursuing Jesus.